gone fishing. Anybody do any fishing this week? Sam did? Yeah? All right. Anybody do any spiritual fishing? Sam's like, oh, don't even tell him about that. I'm embarrassed about that fish. <laughs> Anytime someone calls your fish a baby fish, Sam, that's a bad day, isn't it? <laughs> All right. So today I want to talk with you about those nibbling fish. Those nibbling fish. When you put a worm on, it takes a lot of time and effort to put a worm on. I don't normally fish with worms, but that's when you normally get a lot of nibbles is with worms. And it's so frustrating when a, when a fish is nibbling on your worm. Why? Because you took a lot of time and effort, in, you put a lot of effort into putting that worm on that hook. You got your fingers and your fingernails all dirty. And you got the worm on the hook, and then some fish comes up and just starts nibbling at it. Why is that a problem? Because he didn't eat the whole hook so that you could catch him. All he did was eat your bait. And it's frustrating because now you got to put more bait on and hope that you find a fish that doesn't just nibble, but hope that you find one that actually grabs the hook and eats it. Some days in fishing spiritually, that's all you're going to get. You're going to get nibbles, right? Sometimes, and, and sometimes you're going to catch fish that weren't even biting. You ever caught a fish that wasn't even biting? You can grab it with a net. I remember one time I went fishing with a friend of mine. See, I grew up fishing in, the, in a boat, which the boat is moving constantly. And so you learn the process of that. You've got always new scenery, and, and you're always moving around. So it keeps you engaged. Well, this friend liked to fish on the sea, not on the seashore, but the lakeshore. He liked to fish right on the side of the pond. And, and so I went fishing with him. I was accommodating for him, you know, his way of fishing. And we're sitting there in lawn chairs with a tight line. And some of you might like this. I didn't grow up doing that. It is the most boring kind of fishing possible. You're sitting there with a little bell on the end of your rod, and you're hoping that it's going to start ringing at some point. Now, when a fish gets on, obviously it's fun. Otherwise, you're sitting there all day. And he loved it. He's just sitting there. So after a while, I get up, and I start walking around, and I'm kicking rocks and stuff. And I look over, and there's a guy that is by this little bridge that goes between the ponds, and, and he's doing something over there. So I walk over, there's activity, there's something going on, right? So I go over, and he's got a, he's got a, a, a big stick, and he's pulling something towards him. And all of a sudden, he pulls out this giant carp. It's like 20 pounds. Wow, that's pretty cool. Not that I like carp. <laughs> For a bass fisherman, it's pretty embarrassing to catch carp. Nevertheless, it was something there, right? So I, I thought, wow, that's cool. So I go back over and I sit down by Chris and I'm just hanging out. I didn't say anything about it. After about 30 minutes, I got up and I walked back over to that bridge and I looked under there and there's another one that got stuck up under the bridge because it was a real shallow area. So it got stuck up under the bridge. I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. So I grabbed the stick and I started pulling it towards me and I pulled that carp out. and I thought, oh, he's going to die after this because he's been sitting there all day watching this pole. 
So I walk towards him down the edge of the, the pond, and all these people look over and start and see me with this giant fish in there. What is he doing? So they come towards me, and I'm just like, man, at some point he's going to turn and look at me. And sure enough, he looked up, and he, he's sitting there watching for nothing, and he goes, where did you get that? I just caught it. What? And all these people come around. Apparently, they like to eat carp, and they just, uh, yeah, I don't understand it. But I caught the fish, and it wasn't even hitting. Many fish are brought into the kingdom of God, and it's not that they were hitting. It's that they were stuck. They were stuck under a bridge. They were stuck in life. Something had happened, and they're just like, I don't care who gets me out of here. I just need to get out of here. And you can come along and you can say, all right, come on, I'll get you out of there. And a lot of people come into the kingdom that way. And here's a question. What if it's not you? What if you're not fishing that day that you come by that carp? What if you say, well, it's not my day to do that? And somebody from some false religion grabs onto them. I don't care who it is, just somebody get me out of here. It happened to my mom before I was born. So it's important for us to stay fishing at all times. And sometimes you're going to come across somebody that doesn't know what to do with the rest of their life. And they don't know how they're going to survive through, through today. And that is a great opportunity for you to just drag them on into Jesus, right? Drag them on into the kingdom. But not everyone is stuck under the bridge. In fact, God didn't call us to just sit and watch and wait for people to find that are stuck under the bridge. He's, he didn't call us to just doing that. Let me tell you, the most exhilarating kind of fishing, spiritual fishing that you will do is when you find somebody that's full of energy, that is searching and looking and, and, and hunting for God. That is somebody that, man, when you catch them, that is a blast. When you make that cast, when you put that bait out there and you entice them to hit that bait and you set the hook and you fight them all the way to the boat and they get in the boat and you're like, yes, they came into the kingdom of God. That is life changing, not just for them, but for you as well. It's so exhilarating. But one of the biggest frustrations you're going to face in fishing expeditions, spiritual fishing expeditions, is the people that just nibble. Those nibblers. Some of you have some nibblers in your life. We get so discouraged with all the nibbling that we end up not fishing at all. And we forget about fishing because it gets frustrating. So instead of somebody hitting your bait and grabbing it and getting the hook in their mouth, they just nibble at it. What does that look like? Well, my dad calls it, in bass fishing, because we don't use a lot of worms, he calls it drive-bys. And here's what a drive-by looks like. It's when you're reeling your bait and it's shaking like this, and you can see the tip of your rod shaking while you're reeling, and it's and the bait is coming along. A drive-by is when a bass comes along and doesn't hit it, but it swooshes with its tail and it knocks it off balance for a few seconds and it just goes 
straight without any kind of wiggle. And you can see it on your rod and you can feel the difference as you're reeling. That's a drive-by. See, you learned something about fishing today. So you never saw the fish, but you knew that it was there because it did a drive-by. You're going to experience drive-by nibbles in trying to fish for people in the kingdom of God. People who tease you. You ever had someone tease you for being a Christian? Yep. They'll give you nicknames. Some of these guys, when I walk in to the locations that I take care of, hey, preacher, what are they doing? They're saying, I acknowledge you're a preacher, but don't preach to me. That's a drive-by. I don't want to hear it. Don't preach to me. My dad used to be called Deacon Eaton. They were doing drive-bys. They were doing drive by ever, You ever have someone call you a Bible thumper? Jesus freak? Back in the 70s? <laughs> See, they're, they're taking your bait, but they're not taking your hook. Right? You walk into the break room and they're like, oh, guys, we can't, we stopped talking about this. He's walked in. We can't talk about this while he's around or she's around. Or they're planning an event and, oh, well, we know that you're, you're, you're not going to be able to come because you've got church. Like, like it's a weight on you. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I don't have church. I have church. But before you get to say it, they've already changed subjects. They've already driven by and whoosh. And it's out the window. Before you get the words out. Uh, and if you do get the words out, what do they start doing? Oh, well, we've been to church before. Had a bad experience there before. And they start throwing that at you. And what happens? You get thrown off balance. It was a drive-by. Or they bring up social issues. And they call you a xenophobic. Or they bring up televangelists. This one happens to me a lot. They bring up the televangelist. Well, I heard he drives. Okay, whatever. What do you do when you have these drive-bys? What do you do when you have these nibbles? You say they do these, they take these shots at you, not trying to open a conversation with you about Jesus, but to just let you know that they know what you are, they know what you're up to, and just for reference, I'm not interested in taking the bait. Because they know that there's a hook in there. And they're afraid of it. And you feel so little in that moment. You feel so small in that moment. Like sharing Christ in this culture is a complete waste of time. And it leaves you without hope in ever sharing Christ again. And, and that's just at work. Then you deal with them at home. Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthday parties, the family's got to come, the unbelievers. You've been praying for Uncle Danny for so long, and you just know that at some point, he's actually going to bite the bait, but he never does. He just does some drive-bys. Every time you try to bring up the subject, he swooshes his tail at it and keeps going. Or you've got that brother-in-law that is so intellectual and inclusive of all cultures and religions except Jesus. Right? 
And he thinks you're mindless for accepting Jesus because he's traveled the world and seen all kinds of different cultures and heard about all kinds of different religions and has decided that Jesus was just made up like all these other religions as, as something that's a crutch for people to exist, to find hope and, and some kind of culture in their own place to live. And, and when you bring up Jesus, oh, that's just another religion. No, it's not just another religion. It's not. But you left feeling sidelined, you left feeling, you're left feeling small, and you always think about what you should have said later. Isn't that frustrating? Ah, oh, if I just thought of this when I was there. All right, so what I'm going to give you today is, is a statement to help you deal with this nibbling that's going on. A statement that will help you plant seed in a very short and easy, concise manner. So the temptation for you is to tell them they're going to hell in little red Satan's handbasket. But don't do that. <laughs> the temptation is that you point out their faults and failures because, you know, to bring them down to the same size of what you're feeling. That's the temptation. But hear me now. Don't do that. You don't have to. And it doesn't work. So Peter talked about this. He wrote a letter. First Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be talking or reading from today. Starting with verse 8. Peter said this, be agreeable and sympathetic, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. Oh, already exhausted. What does it say? Look at it again. Be agreeable. How many of you are really good at being agreeable? Not one of you? <laughs> what kind of church have we got here? <laughs> be agreeable. Be, oh, we got a few. <laughs> be sympathetic. How many of you can choose to be agreeable? 80% of us. That's a good start. Be sympathetic. Be loving. Be compassionate. Be humble. You want God to be this way, don't you? And why is he saying this? Because this is something we can choose to be. Well, I'm just not naturally that. Okay, I'm not asking you to be naturally that. God's not asking you to be naturally this. He's asking you to choose to be this, right? Um, that goes for all of you. No exceptions. It's Scripture. I'm still reading Scripture. I know you don't see it up here, but this is still Scripture. He says, that goes for all of you. No exceptions no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. And he's talking about when you're talking to people that need Jesus. Instead, bless. That's your job to bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Do you want a blessing? How many of you like donuts? <laughs> Let's picture this. You'll give a donut and also get a donut. You'll get a blessing and also get a blessing. It's something good. It's something wonderful. You'll get it. Then he says in verse 13, 
if with your heart and soul you're doing good, all right, so he says you're starting to live a good life in Christ. If you're in your, with your heart and your soul, you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. What is he saying? He's saying if you're doing good, you're still better off than doing bad. If you change your life and you start doing good, you're better off. Your, your life gets better. He says, don't give the opposition a second thought. Even if you suffer for doing good, it's better than living a bad life. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts and atten- in a, at attention and adoration before Christ, your master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are. And always, with the utmost courtesy, keep a clear conscience before God, so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need the bath. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did definitively. Suffered because of other sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive again to bring us to God. And verse 15 in another version says it this way. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. He says, when people start taking the bait, you be ready and prepared to give them the hook. Be ready and prepared to give them the answer for why you have the hope in Christ that you have. You've got to be ready. You never know when you're going to come across that person. And you've got to be ready. And I'm going to give you one statement that you can, you can use in that moment to set the hook. So this statement here, though, be ready, is significant. Everything that he said here is significant. Why? Because of what it doesn't say that we need to do. It doesn't say that we need to explain our worldview. They start nibbling. Well, why do you believe this way? It doesn't say we need to explain our worldview. It doesn't say that we need to defend the Bible. Why do you believe in the Bible? It's just an ancient book. It's an old book. Well, the Bible is... There's plenty of information that we teach here that you could use for that. But it doesn't say that you need to give them any of that at this point. It's not what he said. What did he say? He he didn't say that you need to defend your church. Well, I know all the other churches, but our church is blah, blah, blah. You don't need to defend your church. He doesn't say that we need to explain why Christians behave wrong. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that we need to explain the hypocrisy of Christians. Isn't that great? He doesn't say that we need to explain Revelation. And and you could be like Mark and know all kinds of stuff about Revelation. But he doesn't say that you need to have all that information to explain all of that. He simply says to be prepared to tell them why you have the hope in Christ that you have. Can you do that? It's a simple bait that you can use to catch the fish. Just be prepared to give them the answer to that question. What is the question? 
Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? I've been doing this for around 30 years, and I've never had anybody ask me that question. But that is the question that they need answered. And so we answer that question with or without them asking it, because they don't know that that's really the question they want to know. And we're going to give them the answer to that question. And there's one statement that you can make to do that. Let me ask you this. Have you answered that question in your life? Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Well, here's why I have personally chosen to follow Jesus. And then you give it. My hope and my confidence in Christ is because. And then you give it. And what Peter says here is next is so important and something that seems to be missing so often when we try to witness. Verse uh, 15 and 16, he says, when you give this answer, do it with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You're going to be slandered. People are going to talk against you. But you've got to do it with gentleness and respect and all the stuff that we read earlier. What happens when we feel threatened normally? We become defensive and we start threatening back. We pull out our gun. Just seeing if you're awake. All right, so the Jewish Christians were a minority in the, in the lands where this letter was written to. They weren't a powerful group of people in number in these territories. And, and listen, we have historical records of some of the stuff that was happening in these different territories where the Jews had, had gone to because of they were persecuted. And <clears throat> listen, it wasn't just the Jews, Jewish Christians. It wasn't just the Jews that had become Christian in these lands and territory. It was some of the people that lived there as well. And so look at what he says here. He says, when you do this, do it with gentleness and respect. Have you ever seen somebody sharing Christ without gentleness and respect? How did it go? The fish swam as fast as they could, right? He says, don't bully your way around just because Jesus is inside of you. In fact, do the opposite. Do it with gentleness and respect. And secondly, he says, keep a clear conscience. Don't you feel great when you have a clear conscience? When you're not trying to minister to somebody and you got the devil saying, oh, I know what you did back there. Or worse than that, that they know what you did back there, right? You messed up at work and you haven't made it right yet. You see, that's where we've... Listen, a clear conscience comes from not being perfect. It comes from making things right. It comes from confession and going back and making things right and cleaning up the mess that you made. So it's not about you being perfect at work. It's not about you not saying something that you shouldn't have said. It's about going back and fixing things once you've done it. Everybody understand the difference there? 
You see, we've got Christians that walk around and they hide their trails because they're afraid people are going to find out what they did at work. Oh, I broke the copier. And I'm a Christian and I, I'll lose my testimony if everybody in the office knows that I broke the copier. So we hide it. I don't know who was in there. And it was, and how much more of a, some of you have been there, how much more of this would be more effective if you were like, yep, I broke the copier, how much do I owe you, you know, how, you take ownership of where you fail and where you mess up, that's where the beauty of this is, and he says, keep a clear conscience with these people, don't make this about your goodness, Make it about what God has done in your life, his grace, his mercy, and you making things right. Listen, you're going to have people that every time you walk in the room, they think ill thoughts of themselves just because you walked into a room. And I've had people tell me that, well, let me give you a story. There's one guy, was on the phone with him. And he came to Christ on the phone. And after that, he told me every time I walked into his workplace, he would duck out the back because he, he just felt so bad about himself every time he saw me. Now listen, let me ask you a question. Am I really that good? <laughs> I'm not. But it was his perception he felt horrible about himself just because I walked into the room. And you're going to have that. And, but think about it. We've all been in a situation where we were the ones not doing right. Right? We've all been there. And, and we know what it's like when we're not doing right and someone else is doing the right thing. And we know how it feels. And, and let me ask you this. How did you think about the person that was doing right when you were the one doing wrong? How did you feel? Did you ever look at them and go, oh, I'm so thankful that you're the example for me? No. You were like, please leave. Get out of here. I don't want to be around you because you're reminding me of me doing wrong. And so... When we walk into a place or when we're a part of someone's life or when we go to work, the goal is not to display our goodness. The goal is to display the forgiveness and the mercy and the love of God. That's what will catch a fish. Is to show them the love of God. Not your goodness. So here's what you need. You need a response to people of why you have hope in Jesus and you need a life that shows it. Not a perfect life, but a life that makes things right and a life that displays the goodness of God and the grace of God in your life. Man, that's powerful. A life that when others look at you, that deep down they know you live what you believe. That you display that. That's what we need. And even though on the surface they may criticize you, they may make fun of you, they may do those drive-bys, that they have nothing really to say about you. 
that whatever bad that they say about you, they'll walk away being ashamed. That's what Paul said, or Peter said. You see, part of Peter's target area, this is really cool. Part of his target area when he wrote this letter was to a place called Bithynia. Uh, let me read it. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very beginning of the book. The Jewish Christians, he's writing to the Jewish Christians driven out of Jerusalem and scattered throughout. How do they get driven out? Persecution. He says, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, and Bithynia. All right, so there's Bithynia mentioned in this place, or in this, in this um, book. Look at all the locations that the Christians were driven to because of persecution. Persecution can be a really good thing. And they were pushed out into these territories because they were persecuted. And so around uh, 111, or AD 111, we, had, we have preserved letters. These are extra biblical letters that we have preserved of a conversation. This one letter, I'm going to read part of it to you, was a conversation between the governor of Bithynia. His name was Pliny or Pliny. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But uh, it was a letter from him to the Roman emperor Trajan. And to this day, Trajan is known as one of the top two emperors of the Roman Empire, and maybe you've never even heard of him. But he alone stands alone as the greatest military expansion emperor in Roman history, Trajan is. And, and you can see some of his landmarks today. I had a couple that I was going to show you on the screen, but the computer's dying. And, we have, uh, and so we have letters from this Pliny to Trajan that explain some things that were happening with the church in that territory. It's so interesting. I'm going to share just the gist of it, and then I'm going to read a part of it to you. Um, the context of this letter that Tra Trajan, the Roman emperor, received, you see, he had been ordering that the Christians, the Jewish Christians, the people that were Jews that became Christians, that believed in Jesus, that lived in this territory, he had ordered that these guys would be executed and that the Roman Christians, the people that had been converted to Christianity in Rome, that those people would be put in prison for serving Christ. And so Pliny wrote to Trajan and he's got questions. You see, because the Romans had heard that the Christians were the bad people in the territory. And this is kind of interesting. The rumor was that the Christians would eat their children's flesh and drink their blood. Where do you think that rumor came from? Communion. Boy, how things get twisted when they're outside the church pretty funny, isn't it? Now, these were real Christians. These were real people, and they were being accused of eating their children's flesh and drinking their blood. They were Christians that were, they were considered a big threat to the Roman Empire. So in Bithynia, someone most likely, most likely it was a traitor in the church, wrote a list of all the Christians in Bithynia and went and anonymously posted it in town, and all of them got rounded up and put in jail, and they were facing trial. And Pliny is like, man, this is a problem. So he writes this letter to Trajan because they're going to they're be trying these people. Some of them, the Roman citizens, are going to be put in jail. And the Jewish Christians were going to be killed, executed. And so he writes this letter to Trajan. And, and he's trying to understand how to judge rightly for these people that are in prison. He says there are some who are Christians but now have denied Christ. Ooh, everybody say, ooh. Yeah. 
They've denied Christ, and he's wondering, do we actually execute these people? Do we put them in jail? They denied Christ. He says there are some who were Christians, but now they've denied Christ, and he's got to figure out what to do with them. Then he explains the current standard for the Christian is that if, if they hold to their belief in Jesus, that I kill them because they're stubborn or persistent, which is a threat to the kingdom, or if they're Roman citizens, I throw them in prison. And he talks about how he has investigated these Christians. This guy actually took time to investigate the situation. And he speaks specifically in this letter of two women that were part of the leadership in the church that he brought these two women in and he tortured them for information. Now imagine if two of you ladies were taken in and tortured for information to find out. And here's what he found. He said, I found nothing but depraved, excessive superstition. What do you think he's referring to? The resurrection. Depraved, excessive superstition. These people believe this guy raised from the dead. So he writes this letter because he's questioning why killing all the Christians is necessary. He has investigated them and has found out that it isn't just a few Jewish Christians. It's Romans as well. And we're not dealing with a few bad, crazed people here. In fact, he's found that If he hunts down and kills all of the people that are Christians, he's going to be killing and imprisoning the best people in his province. And look at what he said. He said the sum and substance of their fault and error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. Okay, so this is almost like a different language. The sum and substance of their fault The problem with these Christians, he's telling the Roman emperor this, their fault and error is that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. What day was that? Sunday. And I don't like this part. Before dawn. Why do you think they met before dawn? Protection. They weren't going to get arrested. Everybody else wants to sleep, so we're going to get up and we're going to have church before dawn. How many of you would be willing to do that if there was persecution, possibly? Would you, would you show up to church? Yeah, you lie. <laughs> and I like this. I wish you could see it on the screen. They would meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn. Isn't that awesome? Did you sing responsively today? If, if they were to come and investigate us, would they walk away saying, man, that Relate Church is alive with, with, when they sing to God? Wouldn't you like that to be the report of us? Do it. All right. <laughs> you did it. I'm just teasing. Before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. And to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. 
when this was over, when church was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to go partake in food. That's Christians, right? I mean, these were people just like you and me. They went to church, only they had breakfast after church. And he says, and then he adds this. Let me read this again. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. They're not eating their children, right? (laughs) And he says, what is he saying? He's saying, if we kill these people, we're killing the best in our community. Trajan, please don't force me to kill these people and put them in jail. These are the best. These are the cream of the crop in our community. We put these people in jail. We lose these people. We got a problem in our community. How many of you want our leadership in this world to feel that way about the church? So that's why we change our lives as well. Trajan said this. Leave them alone because prosecuting them based on an anonymously posted piece of paper would set a dangerous precedent. And they were freed. You see, most likely, Peter had a great influence in the church being in this land because remember, he wrote to them, what I read to you earlier was 50 years prior to this letter being written. When he told them how to treat, what did he say? First Peter chapter 3. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. He says, be ready to answer to them. But when you're ready to answer them, why you have the hope that you have, do it with gentleness and respect with a clear conscience. James David, would you come? So two things today. You need a response to people of why you have hope in Jesus and you need a life that shows it. It's very simple, right? So what's our response to be? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What did Peter say his hope is? He has hope because of the resurrection. Peter said, I saw him die, and I saw him alive afterwards. First Peter 1.3, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so to bring us to God. That's why Jesus suffered, to bring us to God. So here's our response. No matter what they say, no matter what the drive-by looks like or even feels like, here's a great response in any given situation, whatever they have to say. Because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Why do you believe? Because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. 
Why do you have hope? Because Jesus died for my sins. My sins. Own it. And he rose from the dead. You believe in all that Bible stuff? Yeah, I do, because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Oh, you're just a xenophobia. Phobic. I don't know, I'm not used to saying it. You're just a xenophobic. I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. What about all that killing in the Old Testament? What kind of God is that? I don't know about all that, but I do know this. Jesus died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. You believe in that creation stuff? I mean, we've got all this evolution evidence. I don't know about all that, but here's what I do know. Jesus died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. The only question you need to answer is, why have you chosen to believe and have hope? And when you go fishing, that's the only answer you start with. He died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. And that plants seed, and hopefully and prayerfully, that seed will be watered and grown. Come on, say it with me. Jesus died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. Now let's place emphasis on my. Jesus died for my sins, and he rose from the dead. That's why we have hope. And that's the only reason we have hope. Because he raised from the dead. And he cleansed us from all of our wickedness and unrighteousness. And we don't have to go out and pretend that we're good and righteous. Back in the Old Testament, can I have just a few more minutes? I have no idea where we are on time because the computer's out. So, all right. I mentioned this, I don't know if it was on a Wednesday or a Sunday recently, but in the Old Testament, Moses, when he would go in and he would, he would have conversations with God in this tent, and when he would come out, because he had been with God, his face would be glowing. And he would tell the people what God had said for him to tell them while he was in the tent. And the people would look and go, wow, his face is glowing. We probably should listen to this. If, if, if I had my face glowing, wouldn't you listen to me? <clears throat> Someone say, I am. <laughs> it's the lighting, I promise you, it's not... <clears throat> and so Moses could walk out and do that. Problem was, the glow would fade and eventually be gone. And Moses would walk over to a group of guys and say, Hey guys, you need to do this. And they'd be like, Face isn't glowing. And they wouldn't listen to him because his face wasn't glowing. 
The New Testament references this situation and brings us into it with an understanding that, see, what happened was Moses started wearing a veil over his head so that they couldn't tell when his face was glowing and not glowing. It was a leadership situation where he needed them to listen to him. And he's like, well, they're not going to listen to me if, I don't, if my face isn't glowing. And I haven't been in the presence of God today, so that's going to be a problem. So he wore a veil so that he could keep them guessing. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so in the New Testament, Paul wrote about this and he says, we walk without a veil and we can speak the words of Christ without a veil on. Why? Because we don't need to look holy. We don't need to look good in and of ourselves. We need to look like people who have been forgiven and trust in the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. Not our own goodness. And so we can walk around without a veil and you can see that we're just humans who are trusting in the goodness and the love and grace and mercy of God. You don't need to pretend you're good. Just make things right when you mess up. Repent. Turn away from it. And bring healing into those relationships in your life that you've hurt. And some of you, it's going to take years. And that's okay. It's okay. Just start today. Start today. Would you bow your heads? Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. That's why you believe. He loves you. You don't have to pretend you're good. We're not counting on your goodness for this church to survive. <laughs> We're not counting on you to be good so that everybody can think that this is a great place. We're counting on the goodness of God and the mercy of God in your life. Have you received his presence into your life? Is it, an, is it a good day for you in Christ? God wants to do a work in your life. He wants to make you new. He wants to restore you. He wants to heal your relationships. And he wants others to be able to look on to you and see the goodness and grace and mercy of God. Accept him right now. Jesus, thank you for coming into my life. I invite you to be in every part of my life. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for loving me. I want to live the rest of my life for you in honor and respect of you. Help me. Help me to do what you've called me to. Help me to reach the lost. Help me to go fishing for the people that you want. And God, when I walk in a room 
that they would sense the love and the presence of God, not my goodness, but the goodness of God. Help me, O oh God, to share the love of Christ. Thank you for purpose and meaning for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen.